Hello and welcome to the August 21st edition of Ukraine Without Hype, a podcast by Hermansky International, where we cover the biggest stories of the past week from Ukraine and the region. My name is Maria Romanenko, and beside me is my colleague Romeo Kokretsky. Hey guys! Of course, Belarus has been on our mind not just this week, but for nearly two weeks now. And today is day 12 of the protests, and I expect that new life will be breathed into them this weekend. But before I give you a quick update on the latest developments in Belarus, there's an explosive story here in Ukraine, actually, and is partly related to Belarus. Romeo, will you take it away, please? Yeah, so you might remember in late July, uh, right around the end, Belarus arrested 33 Wagner private military company mercenaries and accused them of destabilizing the country. The story took a lot of twists and turns, and there were a lot of conflicting information about why the Russian mercenaries were there, about Belarus's reaction. Ukraine claimed that 28 of the arrested mercenaries had fought for the occupying side in the Donbass and wanted them extradited to face justice in Ukraine. Though, in the end, Lukashenko sent them all back to Russia. Uh, And actually, Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky posted a very unhappy message on his Facebook (laughs) where he actually used uh, a couple of things in all caps. And, you know, he called this not a brotherhood friendly move and uh, other unhappy things. Uh, So Ukraine did not get these these guys. But interestingly, around this time. Russian publications began to allege that the whole thing was orchestrated by Ukrainian intelligence, specifically the Ukrainian uh, security service, the SBU. So the version that came out was basically the Ukrainians had planned this for two years to grab some of these um, Wagner mercenaries that had fought in Ukraine. uh, And they came up with the idea that they would and again, I'm, I'm not saying this is true or verified information, but simply what the Russian story has has been alleging. So according to that version, the SPU decided to hire a bunch of Wagner mercenaries. Um, Seemingly, they were presenting themselves as employees of Rosneft, a state-owned Russian energy giant, to bodyguard and safeguard some property in Venezuela that belonged to Rosneft or that Rosneft had some interest in. And apparently, these Wagner mercenaries were supposed to take a flight from Moscow to Venezuela with a stopover in Belarus. And when they boarded their flight from Minsk to Venezuela to Caracas, uh, someone on the plane would have gotten violently ill while the plane was flying over Ukrainian airspace, necessitating an emergency landing in Kyiv where the Wagner mercenaries would all be arrested by Ukrainian law enforcement. So that's, that's the Russian version. Obviously, it's a very kind of thriller, spy thriller e plot. Um, it's caused a lot of skepticism about whether or not this could possibly be real. The office of the president was alleged to have kind of germinated or pushed for this whole operation to uh, go into effect. There were allegations that the president's chief of staff, Andrei Yermak, masterminded this whole thing. Uh, of course, the SBU and Yermak have both put out statements saying that this is a Russian fake. It's, you know, complete bullshit. It's not true at all. And it's disinformation. And they're shocked that people in Ukraine are, are, are repeating this. There have been a number of Ukrainian journalists who have also latched onto the story and have come up with 
what is allegedly corresponding evidence. For example, um, one Ukrainian journalist blogger published an audio recording between what she says is one of the Wagner mercenaries and an SBU agent in which they discuss the uh, mercenaries' military history, where he fought. Like, he admits to, for example, fighting in Ukraine. He admits to uh, shooting down um, a couple of pieces of Ukrainian air power, like uh, helicopters. But of course, this uh, the Ukrainian side just say this is this is all fake, uh, and, and is all disinformation. And there's a couple of ways to look at it. On on its head, the idea that Ukraine's intelligence services, which let's face it, don't have the best reputation for competence, to put it lightly, are capable of developing and running through a long running operation like this, does strain credulity. Then again, there are sources, including Kramatsky sources, that say this operation did exist and was real. And actually, in, in the coming days, or early next week, we'll be um, releasing a piece in English about our own investigation to this matter. You can read more about our conclusions and all the different parts of the story there. So, so keep an eye out for that. So if this was a true story... One of the claims made is that it was in planning for two years. And you might notice that President Zelensky has not been in power for two years. And you also might notice that Chief of Staff Andrei Yermak has also not been Chief of Staff for two years, given that that's a longer term than the actual presidency of the current president. Chief of Staff Yermak only assumed that position in February. So it would be odd to paint him as some sort of mastermind of this plot if it's been in the books for two years, because uh, before that, it doesn't seem like he had anything to do with intelligence matters at all. At the same time, sources do say that it was a botched operation and that it did exist. Uh, though, again, it raises the question of uh, one of the, the other claims made in, in the Russian version is that the Ukrainians pretended to be employees of this subsidiary of uh, Rosneft, that hasn't existed since 2018, but also that they contacted a lot of these um, mercenaries directly and directly negotiated with them. And I'm sure as anyone who has ever worked in any kind of hierarchical environment knows, you don't hire contractor employees for the job. You hire the contracting firm who then assigns specific people to the job. And if that's not the case, that's very unlikely how most organizations, I would say, across the world work. At the same time, there there is obviously a gain for Ukraine here. If, if the operation, if it's true and it did go off uh, the way it was planned, then these mercenaries would, in fact, be arresting Ukrainian soil. And, and again, 28 of them are confirmed to have taken part in um, harming uh, Ukrainian soldiers and uh, violating various international laws. But there's also the... Russian angle that you can't really discount here. And that's the fact that Wagner is run by Yevgeny Prigozhin, who is a very close friend of President Vladimir Putin. And based on research that other organizations have done, such as Bellingcat, Wagner is less a private military company and more a state-run private military company. It is very closely connected to the higher echelons of Russian power, and it's hard to imagine that the SBU would be able to successfully fool people who have such a direct connection to all of these elites. 
especially this company that is a part of Rusneft and has stopped working, it seems very basic background checks would reveal that it's all a sham, but who knows? Uh, at the end of the day, the Wagner mercenaries are back in Russia, uh, and they're pretty much out of the reach of Ukrainian law enforcement as long as they're there. There has been no reaction to all of this from Belarus, where these uh, Wagner mercenaries uh, were originally detained. Of course, now they've been sent back to Russia. Uh, but it's not surprising because the Belarusian government, including the acting president Lukashenko, they have a lot to worry already without this story in consideration, as protests have been raging across the country for nearly two weeks now. But in the latest developments, um, an organization that's called the National Coordination Council was created by the 2020 presidential candidate who is now in exile in Lithuania, Svetlana Chihanovskaya. And the council contains human rights activists, lawyers, economists, and others. And it intended to oversee the peaceful transfer of power from 26-year Belarusian president Alexander Lukashenko, who is nicknamed Europe's last dictator, to Tsikhanovskaya, who, according to Alternative Poland, won the elections. But quite expectantly, with Lukashenko still ruling the country, criminal charges have been filed against members of the National Coordination Council, They are being charged with threatening national security and planning a coup, which carry up to five years in prison. Lukashenko has also brought the Belarusian army to full readiness on its western border with the European Union, claiming that NATO is moving tanks into the area. There is no evidence that any NATO member state is preparing any sort of military offensive against Belarus, and NATO has officially denied these claims. Lukashenko also came to an agreement with Russian President Vladimir Putin, which would allow Lukashenko to call on the Russian military in case of external threats. And Belarus acting president also awarded 300 interior ministry employees with medals for excellent service this week, at the same time as regime security forces attempt to quell the mass unrest in the country. Meanwhile, at least uh, four people have now been confirmed dead as a result of the protests, and human rights organizations speculate that the numbers could actually be higher. If you want to hear the backstory on Belarus, head over to our YouTube channel by searching Hamaski International to watch Romeo's explainer of all the events leading up to the protests and up until this week. Search for it on YouTube, or you can just follow the link in the episode's description. Also, if you would like to find out how women became the driving force of the revolution in a patriarchal country like Belarus, I recommend that you check out our explainer on our website en.hamaski.ua. Or again, follow the link in the description. And keep listening to this podcast to hear Romeo's interview with Richard Josvenk, the Europe editor for Radio Free Europe, on the European reaction to the Belarus elections and protests. And he also says, uh, he also comments on these allegations that uh, NATO is like moving its troops uh, closer to Belarus. So this is not the only story we have from the region. Uh, in other news, and pretty major news, Uh, A major Russian opposition leader, Alexei Navalny, has been poisoned, apparently. According to information given out by Navalny's press secretary, Navalny was flying from the Russian city of Tomsk to the capital of Moscow when he mysteriously fell ill. The plane was diverted to a hospital in the uh, the city of Omsk, where he is currently there in critical condition and a coma. Uh, Though... His condition currently is stable, though it doesn't seem like he's uh, recovering. 
the initial diagnosis that was stated for why he fell ill was poisoning. Uh, and his press secretary and members of his opposition group say that the only thing that Navalny had eaten or drank prior to him falling ill was a cup of tea that he drank on the plane. So their suspicion is that someone poisoned the tea on his plane. And poison is a pretty common tool of the Russian special services. They've used it many times uh, in Russia and abroad, if anyone remembers the story of the Skripal poisonings or the multiple distance being poisoned in Berlin. Uh, it's a very common tool that they use, so it's pretty reasonable to to jump to that conclusion. The Russian authorities are not very keen on investigating the case. Russia is famously not very keen on opposition leaders at all, and Navalny has been kind of the face of the Russian opposition movement for quite a number of years now. So at this hospital where in Omsk where he's lying, uh, his um, family and his friends have been trying to get him transferred to uh, a hospital in Germany. Um, they actually have a medevac lined up and it's just been waiting on the tarmac to take him. The doctors are not allowing this. Uh, they say he is, quote, too sick to travel, though how true that is, is hard to judge because Navalny's personal family doctor is not being allowed to check on him. In fact, for the first uh, few hours of him being in critical condition, his wife was not allowed to visit him, and it was only after quite a few hours of negotiations that she could even go into his room. The police are not investigating this as a poisoning. Um, instead, they have seized uh, a lot of his equipment, for reasons that are not clear, and they didn't mark down, they didn't provide a receipt of anything they seized, they just kind of took it. His wife was managed to keep some things to herself because she said that the only way they would take everything is if they would arrest her, and for whatever reason, they have not done that yet. And Navalny's uh, opposition group is also reporting that the doctors are not allowing any medical documentation on his state uh, to be handed out, so they're not giving any official paperwork describing his diagnosis. Uh, and now, of course, they've started claiming that Navalny was not poisoned, but simply is diabetic, and the change in air pressure in the plane caused his blood sugar levels to spike, which seems a little more suspicious than him being poisoned as an opposition leader in a country where opposition leaders are very much disliked. So far, there hasn't been any developments uh, in his health. There haven't been any changes. They're still not allowing him to be medevaced, and he's still lying there in a coma. So we're going to keep watching this story, and you can keep watching our Twitter at, at Romansky for the latest updates on this story. But this isn't the only suspected attack on someone who spoke out against the government that happened in Eastern Europe this week. Uh, as in Ukraine... A car belonging to a well-known media organization got torched. And Maria, I think you know more about this. Yes, so this happened on the night of August 16th. In the early hours of August the 17th, RFERL journalist Mihailo Tkach posted on Facebook that a car belonging to a driver working with him was torched in a suburb near Kiev. 
And this is far from the first story related to RFERL that emerged recently. Tkach actually works on their Schemes Corruption and Details project that does um, a lot of uh, really good investigations into the actions of the government in particular and in different officials. Uh, just recently, this month, uh, Tkach uh, found some surveillance equipment in his flat. Um, think that's being investigated as well as there have been like other attacks uh, verbal and threats uh, in relation to RFERL journalists because of uh, all the work they do and specifically I think this has become a bit of a trend recently with the new government but anyway uh, it's been said that law enforcement officers are looking into this um, this incident with the with the car being blown up um, as well as um, the U.S. embassy in Ukraine uh, has called upon the Ukrainian government to investigate this properly. And this is also not the first vehicle that was connected to a schemes journalist that was burned this year. Early in January, journalist Halina Tereshuk reported that her car was uh, torched. And this week, the security service of Ukraine reported they had arrested a suspect in the crime, who they say is a former police officer. And finally, our last story for the week. So the EU has finally published an official statement condemning the elections in Belarus, and they have said that these elections were neither free nor fair. They do not recognize the results of these elections. They also added that they're going to be putting personal sanctions on Lukashenko and his inner circle in order to pile on the pressure on Belarus. And of course, they've called for peaceful dialogue. They've called for a uh, peaceful transfer of power. And this is all, of course, played into Lukashenko's, I would say, kind of delusional ramblings that NATO wants to invade Belarus. Again, there is absolutely no evidence of this. Um, but to find out more about the EU's specific reactions and how effective the EU can really be in persuading Lukashenko to step down and allow either re-elections or allow Tikhanovska to take power, I spoke to Rickard Yozviak, who is the Europe editor for Radio Free Europe, Radio Liberty. Let's dive right into it. So the Belarusian presidential elections are, of course, very highly contested. Uh, a few countries have come out and accused uh, Belarusian President Alexander Lukashenko of committing outright fraud in his bid to win re-election. Uh, and now the EU has come up, uh, I think, with what has been the strongest statement so far, uh, where they just unequivocally reject the results of uh, of the election. What could this mean for for? Uh, Belarusian politics going forward. I mean, we have the coordinating council uh, set up by Svetlana Tikhanovska in, in uh, Lithuania. Charges being pressed. How uh, how impactful is really this this declaration from the European Union? I think it's mainly moral support, but I don't think it will change the calculations very much for for Mr. Lukashenko. Actually, I I think the response of the EU has been extremely cautious and actually quite weak. If I can be totally honest and, and a bit cynical about it, I mean I I've followed EU politics towards uh, the Eastern Partnership for a very long time, and and it's much weaker than it was towards, for example, Ukraine during the, the um, Euromaidan revolution. I mean, to be honest, the EU has actually not openly asked for Lukashenko to step down. They still recognize it. Uh, they have not explicitly asked for a rerun of elections. Uh, so they are very, very careful. And I think that has to do uh, largely with uh, the legacy of the Euromaidan and also that they are worried about how Russia will react to a much more 
adventurous European Union. Uh, so you mentioned the legacy of the Euromaidan. What role does that have to uh, have to play here? I think it has a huge role. It's a, it's, it's it's a mental ghost, I would say. Um, obviously, I I think, and I think many other countries in the European Union also think that the EU reacted correctly uh, back in 2013-14 by you know trying to mediate, showing, going to the Maidan, speaking to the people and so on and so forth. Uh, but there is a big difference, though, uh, between uh, the two revolutions, if I can call them that. Uh, that is that the, the Ukrainian revolution, in cor- according to many European Unionists, and I, th- I actually agree with them, was really about a, a geopolitical choice. Uh, Ukraine chose between an association agreement with the EU or closer integration with, with Russia and the Eurasian Economic Union at the time. Uh, so the EU had to be engaged. Right here in Belarus right now, I think this is more about, you know, a change of leadership. It's a national issue rather than something that has more regional or international connotations. And so the EU doesn't really feel that it's about them in the same way as it was uh, back in 2013 when Yanukovych rejected an association agreement with Brussels. So uh, the EU is sort of, Treading very carefully and making sure that it doesn't look like that they are intervening in any way because they know that if Moscow feels that the European Union is intervening, they know what happened in 2014 when Russia suddenly went in and seized Crimea and started a war in Donbass. So they are very worried about Moscow's reactions. So while they're looking at Minsk with one eye, there's also one eye on how Moscow is perceiving any sort of message they send to Belarus. Now, at the same time, in EU country has given the the likely victor of the elections, as far as we can tell, um, Svetlana refuge in, in their country. Uh, and you know, Lukashenko has gone out and he's got and he said that NATO is preparing to invade. He's brought troops up to readiness on the western border. Um, and and while that is laughable, uh, is there a chance that that you might not be? playing out their entire hand, as it were, that they're being a little too overcautious in, in how they approach the Belarus situation? Well, I do think so. I mean, uh, of course, Lithuania plays a very specific role. It's it's a close neighbor to Belarus. They they have always played an outside outsized role, I would say, in Belarus. Uh, so they are very active. Uh, they obviously want, you know, stronger sanctions. And sanctions will come. I don't, just don't think they will be particularly strong. And I don't think they will have any particular bite on, on the regime as such. They're quite weak. They're, we're not talking about, you know, sectoral economic sanctions. We're talking about sanctioning people probably don't have a bank account or wouldn't travel to the EU anyway. So they're highly symbolic or nothing else. So um, I, I do think that uh, the EU has been weak and I do think that there might be a chance that the EU will show more of its hand but on the other hand I don't think there's much more to do for the EU in terms of you know the whip is only sanctions and that's it and in terms of carrots yeah they can offer certain types of money but that's it what I do think they should do though is to to what I alluded to in my first question, they should actually just say that they don't recognize Lukashenko and they should demand a rerun because they've already said that elections are not free and fair. They've already said that the, you know, the, the elections were tampered with, that they were false. So the logical conclusion saying A is to say B as well. Well, Lukashenko has to go and there has to be a rerun and they're not doing that. So, so that's sort of, I would wish that they were a bit more forthcoming. And I think countries like Lithuania, Poland, neighbors of, of, the, of Belarus would do that as well. So um, you mentioned uh, that the EU actually doesn't have much of a whip or even a carrot in the situation to, to influence 
the regime's behavior. Uh, but they do have sanctions, like you said, uh, though it is interesting to note that these are personal sanctions. Um, now, when sanctions are personally levied against, let's say, a Russian oligarch, a Ukrainian oligarch, these are usually pretty hard-hitting because these people tend to have a lot of assets abroad, especially in, in London, um, in New York, and, and so on. Um, is there a similar thing? Can, can these sanctions really affect high-level regime officials uh, in the same way they, they would, for example, in Ukraine or in Russia? I doubt it, to be honest with you. I mean, we have a, a precedent. I mean, the EU had sanctions against Lukashenko and his inner circle, in fact, about 130 people, when they did a similar crackdown in the presidential elections in December 2010. And the sanctions were slapped on in February 2011, and they lasted for about five years. And in that time period, so 2011 to 2016, I don't really think that, you know, much changed for Lukashenko and his cronies. I mean, they still had power over Belarus. I don't think it diminished just because of those sanctions. So it is in a sense that the, the you know, the oligarchs of Ukraine and also Russia are much more international. Belarus is slightly more of a national country. They're not, they don't have that much relations or business with the rest of Europe. So obviously the sanctions cannot hit that hard. I mean, uh, it's the same thing there. They don't have, when you look at the leadership in Russia and, and, and Ukraine, the previous regime in Ukraine, they did have, you know, uh, business people who are, were constantly doing business with France, with Italy, with Germany, so on. That's not really the case with Belarus. So, so the sanctions are primarily symbolical, but I don't really think they'll have much of an effect so Belarus's largest trading partner um, is Russia, right? So, so they don't do a lot of business, like you mentioned, uh, with, with the West. Um, but at the same time, if that is the case, why is the EU not pressing for more sector-widening sanctions? I mean, you have a bunch of workers in Belarus that are on strike anyway. These enterprises are, are losing money by the day. Um, what could the EU's reason be for not you know, moving a little bit forward in that in the economic arena and uh, putting just wide ranging, you know, we're not going to buy tractors or um, we're not going to buy fertilizer or whatever it is. When I've spoken to EU diplomats about this to say that, well, you know, we're going to start slowly and then we want to have the option of scaling up in case it gets worse. And um, that's fair enough, I think, you know, I mean, they're starting little by little and then it will have sort of a, a drip effect and they can do more depending on how Belarus reacts to um, to uh, the EU sanctions to begin with. If this crackdown continues, they can you know, turn it up and they can turn to maybe sectoral sanctions eventually. Um, the counter argument is that, well, maybe then it will already be too late. Maybe then more lives have been spilled in the streets of Minsk and other cities in Belarus. And, and maybe then they're simply not effective because Belarus and Lukashenko have then already turned to Russia or China or uh, another country that might be, you know, uh, more willing to, to accommodate him. And here's another thing that, that, that is very interesting to me. So Tikhonovska is in uh, Lithuania, and, you know, she's spoken to um, the foreign minister there. I believe she's spoken to the head of state there. Um, but not a lot otherwise has been said in terms of official recognition of her um, as the legitimate president of, of Belarus. Um, is, is there a chance that the EU could possibly turn the screws by recognizing Tikhonovska, or is that uh, considered to be too risky or too provocative a move? 
I think Absolutely. exactly that's that's too risky and too provocative. They would they wouldn't do that. Uh, I asked sort of I asked actually a question to Ursula von der Leyen, the Commission president, and and she sort of batted away the question, saying, "Well, you know, if they want new election, then then it's up to the Belarusians to decide. We are not going to decide anything for them. We're not going to recognize anything for them. So they're very much le- leaving it in the hand of the Belarusians, which is." It's a clearly noble idea. I mean, that, that's what sovereignty is about. The, the question is that I just think that they are being a bit naive because on the other side of Belarus is a player that don't play with the same rules, even though they might say that to the Europeans that they do. Uh, so so it's, it's a very noble thing the European Union are doing. But I also think at the same time, it's also very naive. It also seems to me like that could be sapping away the credibility of this coordinating council that Tsikhanovska has set up. Uh, and, you know, she's trying to position herself now as the legitimate leader, uh, and she's made um, statements uh, and calls for the European Council and for the European Union to recognize her, uh, and that kind of international support is not forthcoming. Um, and it seems to me like this this actually very heavily weakens the, uh, the opposition standing within Belarus, and I think maybe even more importantly without, especially regarding Russia. Oh, yeah, absolutely. I agree with you. I mean, this is the sort of thing like what what she has is popular support right now. But the popular support can only be there as long as you have some sort of real power to back it up. You know, the popular support can be waning. You know, like Lukashenko still have the Trump card that he still has the military and the security service behind him. Chiskanovskaya has popular support right now, but not much more international support either. I mean, yeah, sure, they'd say that they they, they, they like her and they, they, they host her and stuff like that. But if they're not recognizing her, if it's not coming with that weight of the international community backing her, she's actually quite weak, especially not when she, especially when she's also isn't in the country. So so I think this 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 whole commission or committee that she's trying to set up can be very short lived unless she gets more backing from substantial backers like the European Union. Yeah, it seems it seems that way as well. You know, when you're in the country and you can pretty much call up a, a massive tens of thousands of people protest exactly. on a whim wherever you want, that is a very serious threat. But, you know, when you're across the border and importantly, people aren't giving you, aren't, aren't going, well, you know, this is the legitimate president. We're going to give her funds. We're going to give her money. We're going to help her with the administrative stuff and so on. Then Lukashenko can, can see... A very weak opposition. Yeah, I mean, what he sees is just a private Belarusian citizen in exile. Yes, that, mm-hmm. that's what she is right now. I mean, nothing else. Yeah, precisely. Yeah, and that that is that is not very strong. I mean, like compared to a man who's been president for twenty six years now and still has all the levers of physical power potentially to direct at people. Um, so, so that 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 is what she is up against. Um, Physically speaking, quite literally, and, and but also politically and philosophically. So, so it is an uphill struggle, to put it mildly. And um, just one more question here before we wrap up. Uh, I mentioned this earlier. So Lukashenko um, had declared some threat of uh, invasion of NATO from the Western border, and he he uh, said that Poland and Lithuania and the Czech Republic, for some reason, all wanted to invade Belarus. Yeah. <laughs> um, and, and and I was kind of curious, what does he hope to gain by doing so? Because it doesn't take that much to see that that is not the case and that is very unlikely to happen. It's unlikely for us, 
sitting in uh, as I do in Prague and I suppose you in Kiev where we have you know free internet and, and, and free media and we can obviously just pick up the phone as a journalist and, and call and, and sort of see on Twitter that this is not the truth that everyone is denouncing this there are no Czech or Polish or Lithuanian troops amassing on the Belarusian border but I do think that there is quite a large section of Belarusian society that believe him because that's what they've always done and he can control certain channels of communication still there and as we know like internet is every now and then switched off in in Belarus so I do still think that he he's talking to his base essentially and I also think he's talking to a Russian base uh, as well uh, in Russia I mean that that also think are obsessed with this paranoid thought that the West be it you know the European countries or the United States more likely are at their doorsteps surrounding them. I think that that is a thought, a prevalent thought in, in large strata of, well, not a large, but a substantial strata of, of, of Belarusian and Russian society. So he's essentially massaging his base with, with the stereotypes he always has. Mm-hmm. I see. Um, thank you very much for that enlightening conversation. It was a pleasure to speak to you. I hope it was okay. So that was Ricard Josberg, the Europe editor for RFERL. And that's it for this week. And if you like this podcast, please rate it on your favorite podcast platform. We are on SoundCloud, Apple Podcasts and Google Podcasts. Your ratings and reviews really help us. And this is far from our only product. Check out our YouTube videos by searching for Harmatsky International on YouTube. There you can also find our latest explainer on Belarus. Sign up for our daily newsletter by following the link in the description. And don't forget to follow us on Facebook, search for Hermatsky International, and Twitter, at at Thanks for listening to us today, and please don't forget to rate us. Mm-hmm.